0: com podcast. My name is Ben Stone. Today is Friday, May 11th, 2012, and this is podcast number 143. So uh, yesterday, um, my podcast ended up being uh, the entire hour pretty much talking about uh, something that I meant to spend like, you know, 5-10 minutes talking about. And, uh, you know, i <laughs> Sometimes that just happens. I, you know, what what can I say? Um, I was talking about. I think the tagline that that was put with the file was something like an an unorthodox theistically and atheist friendly view of the origin and sin, uh, origin of sin and how that ties to the origin of the state. And um, I think I well more than covered that topic. Although there was a couple of things, I went back and re-listened to it, and I th- and I thought, you know, I could have just clarified a couple of things a little bit better uh, as I breezed over them. And then I um, I was looking through emails, and I'm, I'm a little bit backlogged on emails, but I I was looking through the emails, and one of them, the person said, uh, "Thank you for sharing your theories and ideas. If only more people could see that the very real Lucifer enslaving." Uh, try that again if only more people could see the very real lucifer enslaving and ripping apart the world but they must recognize the lucifer within themselves first to forsake violent monopolies for natural law and the joy of life again and i and i thought uh you know wow i I got my point across or at least a large portion of my point that was great i appreciate the emails uh, that came in um and And again, I'm a little backlogged on emails, so if I haven't got to yours yet, if I haven't responded if you've sent me an email and I haven't uh responded back just uh, i'll I'll get to it as quick as I can. I'm kind of up to my ears but but that email really uh let me know that i I at least got part of my message across yesterday i I wasn't trying to you know uh convince any atheists about God or anything like that but but one way of looking at evil, one way of looking at. You know, a lot of a lot of atheists will uh, explain uh, the abundance of religion and the abundance of people's belief in religion as um, there's a certain necessity in the mind to make up a you know make up a, a purpose and a reason for everything, and so we have a tendency to um, sew together unrelated things and assume that there's something relating them together so this is uh, i've talked before about looking in a cloud and imagining that it looks like a bunny rabbit or a dragon or or a turtle or whatever and it doesn't it doesn't at all look like those things but that's not the point you look at it and your mind seeks patterns and so in your mind you you literally make it look like the thing that you're imagining and that's one of the criticisms of theism is that um You know, it's possible that humans look at entirely unrelated events and use that as evidence and and try to put together uh, a a thing that they can believe in that they're comfortable with, and thus we have religion. And I'm not entirely sure that's right or wrong. I'm just, you know, expressing that, that that's that's one argument. And um, But I do kind of think that, you know, assuming that that's the case assuming that that's actually what religion is that it's just a an effort by people to make sense of things that they don't understand once you believe in let's let's say you believe in thor i mean let's you know just pick on a religion that's not real uh real popular in today's uh, society let's say you've put this all together and you and you believe in uh, in thor and um, then you begin making decisions in your life based on your belief in Thor. And, uh, and you start to mold aspects of your life around your belief in Thor. Uh, and you begin to take actions in interacting with other people in relationship to your beliefs in Thor. Well then, in a sense, in a very real sense, Thor becomes real. Because your actions are making Thor real, even if there's no real Thor, even if there's no guy, you know, with a giant hammer sitting in a cloud, is beside the point. The fact is, you are becoming the outworking of Thor, and so Thor exists because your belief in Thor exists. Um, now, let's translate that over to the state. Um, what, what we're talking about here with Lucifer, if indeed my theories that I expound, expounded upon yesterday, if my theory has any substance to it at all, Lucifer. This is coming yesterday was a very theistic point of view. Today I'm I'm kind of um, throwing some some bait out. I'm chumming the waters for uh, for atheist here, but let's just assume um just for the sake of argument so so uh, you know theists kind of hold on to your hat for a minute here we yesterday i, I appealed to you guys today let's let's give the atheists a chance so let's just assume that there that there is nothing beyond the realm of science and but if we assume okay so don't you just love interruptions um and I'm not sure what I was talking about and I can't back up the uh, <laughs> I can't back up the well we don't have a tape we don't use tape these days so anyway I think I was just kind of trying to give a recap of yesterday's uh, thing and uh, oh I was talking I was trying to give sort of an atheist view I I think I remember maybe I can pick back up on that Okay so I'm not sure exactly how much I had said but let's let's ass- let's assume uh uh, I think I was talking about how, if you're a believer in Thor and you and you act on behalf of those beliefs, then, in a very real sense, Thor becomes real through your actions. Okay, now uh, let's go back to the Lucifer thing. So uh, let's let's imagine that there is no. You know, magic monster devil called Lucifer. That there is no uh, guy with a viperated tail and a pitchfork and you know all red scaly skin or anything. Let's let's imagine that that's all just mythology, just like just like Thor. Um, but let's believe. I mean, let's assume for a moment that uh, when when human beings take, like I was saying yesterday with, with law, when you, when human beings step outside of the natural law that we have, again, this is the atheist view here. So, you know, theists just stick with me for a minute. I'm not going to do the whole podcast on this really. I know I said that yesterday, but seriously, really anyway. Um, so, uh, so we have this natural law that's embedded into us, just like ducks have a natural tendency to know which way is north, and butterflies know that they're supposed to get to Canada in the, you know, in the uh, in the summer. Well, not all butterflies, but specifically monarchs uh, migrate from Mexico to Canada and back to Mexico every year. And these are embedded things that is inside them, that's deep inside their brains, and it's instilled through eons of and eons of time through generations and generations and generations of developed uh uh um behavior and uh, if we assume that butterflies have this embedded into them from uh you know vast amounts of time and evolution taking its toll on them and if we believe that ducks fly north and ducks can sense the directions if, and if we believe that that bees uh, can chart in their own tiny little brains how to get sometimes miles to go from the hive to a particular area that it, where where uh, plants are blossoming and then chart back and then and then land at the hive and through body movements communicate the map on how for other bees to go out and find uh, those those same to follow those same directions and find that those same blossoms. If we understand that eons of time have embedded these very complicated processes into the minds of these simple little animals, and if you believe all that, and if you believe that human beings evolved over eons of time, then how could you possibly believe that human beings evolved without natural law? Keeping in mind how I described natural law yesterday, I used the birds for an example that the the sparrow, if you didn't hear yesterday's podcast, I'll, and I'm not going to go into this in great depth, but the sparrows uh, around in my yard, um, they have a series of laws that they obey by nature, by instinct. It it their their laws are very apparent, uh, and and they follow them very strictly. And yet the blue jays that are eating off the same driveway, picking up food and and uh, functioning birds, uh, you know, just like the sparrows, except bigger and different colored. And yet they follow completely different natural laws. Natural laws, very unique to the blue jays. And each of these uh, two types of birds have evolved over eons of time to adopt the kinds of behavior that keeps their species uh keeps their species reproducing and going for future generations. And if the sparrows did not follow those natural laws precisely, they, they would die out within a couple generations. And if the blue jays did not follow their exact laws precisely, they would die out after a few generations. So it's following these natural laws that actually perpetuates their, perpetuates their species. And yet the blue jays cannot perpetuate their species by following the laws of the sparrows. And the sparrows certainly cannot function under the laws of the blue jays. So if we believe that these bees have this kind of uh, natural law, and if we believe that butterflies have this type of instinct built into them, and if we believe that ducks, and if we believe that that blue jays and sparrows, then then why can't we believe that human beings have evolved over eons of time and developed certain Natural laws that apply to us that are unique to us as a species, and then open your eyes and look around. There's stuff going on that is a serious threat to our species. How can that be? If we're following natural law, how can anything we're doing be a threat to our species? I, I lived a lot of a lot of years out in the Mojave Desert, and there would be uh, booms and busts, if you could call it, if you could put it in an economic scale. There would be uh, surges that might be a better way to put it. There would be surges in certain populations, uh, for instance, uh, if we'd get a good wet uh, winter, the the winter time in the Mojave Desert is the rain season. And if we'd get a good wet winter without a lot of really hard freezing, then uh, we'd have an explosion of some types of bugs. For instance, there's a a beetle out there that's referred to as a stink bug or a stink beetle, which is very different than a stink bug that we have back east back here. But um, this weird little beetle would have a population explosion if we had a mild, uh, temperature-wise, a mild winter with a lot of rain. The other thing we would have is an explosion of plant life in the Mojave Desert. This explosion of plant life would produce an explosion in the rabbit population. An explosion in the rabbit population, within a few months, there would be an explosion in the coyote population to compensate for the rabbit explosion population, population explosion. And and the weird thing is that each of these things, as odd as their population's explosions were... Uh, it all balanced out year after year after year, and there was no real crash in uh, in the rabbit population. Now, when when the dry years came, now yes, there was a drastic reduction in the rabbit population in dry years, and there was a drastic reduction in the coyote population during uh, years when there was not a lot of rabbits to eat. But there wasn't an actual crash. The coyotes live on, and the rabbits live on, and the stink bugs live on, you see. Now, what we're looking at with humans is a very different thing. We're looking at the serious possibility that humans could end human life on Earth. We came drastically close to that just 30, 40, 50 years ago. It was a serious, uh, you know, in the early 60s specifically, there were a couple times when we came real close to wiping out human life. And and so that can't be natural. And what was it? The source of all that? What about the? Oh, I'm sorry. I'll answer the question before I go to the next one. The state was the source. The Soviet Union and the United States playing playing worldwide chicken with each other. That was the source of a threat to the human race. That has got to be unnatural. And that's the state and what is the state the state as i've said over and over the state is the thoughts in in human being in the heads of human beings that say this is legitimate for governments to exist and and to use aggression and theft and lies as their as as how they prop themselves up and exist. It's legitimate for, when we believe that it's legitimate for governments to exist using aggression, threats of aggression, lies, theft, when we believe that and we make a place in our minds for the state to exist, just like if we believe in Thor, then we're believing in something that is evil. And when I say evil, we're talking evolutionary here, I'm talking about something that can end our species. The state is the only thing, in however long humans have existed, in whatever form we've existed, the state is the only thing that seriously has ever threatened our species. Ice ages did not threaten our species. As a matter of fact, I've said this before. There's a considerable considerable huh? t.Here's a considerable amount of evidence that human beings actually thrived during the ice age in a stateless society and yet here we are now in a relatively stable environment as far as weather goes that, that could be argued to a certain extent but where we stand today it's relatively stable and yet here we are threatened over and over by the state by a myth that we all believe in collectively and that myth create something that's so dangerous that it could actually end human life that's a pretty scary thought we have comp we have not companies we have corporations playing around like Monsanto and others playing around uh, with with DNA and we don't really know what the end result of that is going to be but we do know this uh, these things are backed by the, by the aggression of government Corporations are backed by the aggression of government. So would there have ever been an atomic bomb ever created if it weren't for the aggression of government? We probably would have figured out how to split the atom, but what would have been the result of that? Or would we have? I don't know. Maybe not. Would we have ever learned how to splice genes and make, you know, frankenfoods? Probably not. Not without the aggression of government. Not without people... Not being held responsible for their actions, and that's what corporations—that's uh, the the environment corporations create—is where individuals are not held responsible for their actions, and that's what the state is. That's what the state creates. The state creates hey, when you believe in the state, and you apply that to government, then you you create a, 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 an organization that takes away the repercussions for a person's actions. And that's, that's really what government ends up doing when it's based on the state. That's what corporations end up doing when, when they're based on the aggression of the state. That's what you know. banking institutes... Uh, we look around, we see the banking institutes on the verge of collapse, and we see how the monetary system is is, such, is so threatened. And the reason why is because individuals are not held responsible for their actions. Once they're in the banking system... They can make those decisions, and even if the banking system collapses, the, the top people making those decisions, they'll be fine because they're not because the state has created an atmosphere for them where they're not responsible for their actions. And what is that state? That state is that thing that we believe in, that aspect of us. How was it that the, uh, that the person in the email put it? Let's see. If only more people could see the very real Lucifer enslaving and ripping apart the world, but they must recognize the Lucifer within themselves first. You see, it's in our mind. Lucifer is that thing, that evil that exists in our mind that causes us, causes us to set aside, again, we're coming from an evolutionary point of view here, causes us to set aside eons of time, that if, where evolution has created us as we are, and we set that aside, and we make for ourselves a new set of laws, and we believe them to be legitimate, that's Lucifer. That's the thing in our brain that can kill the species, that can wipe us out. It's unnatural. It's where we have stepped away from our natural evolutionary development, and we've created a, you know, there are uh, in evolutionary th- theory, there are um, dead branches that go off. If you can imagine, you know, the uh, the evolutionary tree, so to speak, there are unsuccessful branches that go off in certain directions, and they produce a species that's that's just, you know, not not adapted correctly. And it disappears. That's why we don't have T. Rexes running around. That's that's why there are no Velociraptors. That's why there there are a few dozen pandas or whatever is left because there are odd uh, species that branch out in a direction that has a flaw. In I mean, they they adapted for one thing or another, but but they specialize too much in something and uh, and they're not able to adapt back into a wider environment, and so the species dies off. Well, that's what human beings are on the verge of doing. Now, we've only had the state. Keep this in mind. We've only had the state for less than 10,000 years. That's a drop in the bucket. For the evolutionist who thinks about this, 10,000 years of having a state, that's nothing. That's a wink. That is nothing. But that 10,000 years of time is a serious threat to our species and at some point our species has to make one of two directions either abandon that tree that branch of the tree or follow it and reap the result, the, the the results of that decision and it's my contention that we must uh, abandon we we must embrace reason and abandon the foolish belief In the state, okay. So that's my evolutionary argument on the on the topic. I meant to have that like five minutes, and we're like twenty instead. So we're we're right on track. Okay. Now I want to talk about. um, Oh, okay. (laughs) I just looked at my notes. I saw a story linked on Facebook that the uh the congress was having um congressional meetings uh the specifically i think it was the banking uh, oh i can't remember exactly so i shouldn't say anyway whoever it is in congress that that uh looks at the banking issues and and you know talks to the fed and all that kind of stuff and ron paul is now the chairman of that since the republicans took the majority back in 2010 or whatever so uh, so they're having these meetings and they're discussing what can be done about the fed and a, a number of proposals, both bipartisan and, and partisan, a number of proposals are being kicked around by the, by the Congress goons and Ron Paul's, uh, um, recommendation it has a particularly aggressive title i can't remember it now i should have had i should have put that in my notes i just put a little note that said in the fed and ron, and the ron paul flaw but i should have actually you know put some of the notes in as to who i'm talking about so that people could look it up maybe even a link to that would have been nice but anyway so so there so these congress guys are talking about this and ron paul presents this uh this proposition to uh to abolish the Federal Reserve essentially, and uh, the even the title of his uh, uh, proposal is very aggressive it 's about abolishing it I think it uses the word abolish the federal reserve anyway um, here 's the problem with that, and here 's why that is not a libertarian way of thinking and here 's the flaw of ron paul 's uh, actions in that and this is and what i 'm about to present. Is what when I say that if you elect Ron Paul as president, what you will be doing is putting Ron Paul in a position where he will violate the zero aggression principle on on a moment by moment basis, and and people have called me to task on that and said, no no no, if he's just you know if he's just uh, making our 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 burden lighter, then he's not. Well, yeah, he is. Everything he does, everything a person in power does violates the zero aggression principle so so in this case ron paul is asking to abolish the federal reserve now, how could that possibly be violating the zero aggression principle well i i put a note on this in facebook and so if you if you're a facebook friend then you're gonna say like well, i already read that what do i need to listen to you for but this is what i said in facebook essentially and i'm not getting it word for word but Anyway, um, let's, say, let's say you like raw milk. Let's say you're an advocate of raw milk. You love raw milk. You think everybody ought to have the opportunity to have raw milk if they want it. Okay, But then the government comes in and the government says, no, you can't have raw milk. We'll throw you in jail if you buy or sell or produce or distribute raw milk. Well, that's, uh, the, the government is breaking the zero aggression principle when they do that. The people in government that enforce that nonsense are violating the zero aggression principle. If you want to consume raw milk, that's your right. And if you want to produce raw milk, that's your right. And if you want to transport it, that's your right. And if somebody wants to buy it from you and you want to sell it to them, again, none of these things are the government's business, and the government has no right interfering. So when the government does interfere on any level, for you as a raw milk lover to either produce, consume, transport, buy or sell raw milk. Anytime the government interferes on any level in that, they are violating the zero aggression principle and they are aggressing upon you as a milk lover, as a raw milk lover. Now, so let's say you get control of government Okay, now let's say you say uh, to the whole world, I love raw milk and everybody, uh, you know, we're no longer going to have these silly laws that say that people can't have raw milk. And so then you make a law, you make a law outlawing pasteurized milk. Well, what you just did is exactly what the government was doing to you, because there are people who want pasteurized milk. And you might say, no, but pasteurized milk is not as healthy for you as raw milk. Hey, you're probably right. I believe that. I believe that to be the case. But it's not the point. The point is there might be some people, there might be some people who want pasteurized milk. And if you get the reins of government and you outlaw pasteurized milk, you are supporting the state and you are violating the zero aggression principle. And this is what Ron Paul did, and he's doing, and that's what he would do as president. Instead of going in and saying, okay, there's a problem with the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve is ripping people off, the Federal Reserve is doing these things, this is the problem with we can't even properly audit it, we don't know what they're doing, what we have seen and what they're doing is not good. All All that is correct. All of Ron Paul's accusations against the Fed are correct. But then it gets to the point of saying, okay, what are we going to do about it? Well, what would the market do? What would Let's go back to the Christians. What would Jesus do? When they brought the prostitute who was, who was caught in the act, uh, they brought this prostitute to Jesus and threw her at his feet. And they said, the, the law says she should be stoned. Are you going to stone her? Are you going to do it, Jesus? And Jesus is like, uh, whoever among you is without sin, cast the first stone. And now, think about this from the Federal Reserve point of view. Ron Paul, even as the head of his committee, or even as president, or in any other position that you want to put him in, does not have the rightful authority to outlaw the Federal Reserve, to abolish the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is a private organization. What gives you, Ron Paul, or anybody else in government, or anybody else who supports such activity? What gives you the right to abolish anything? You see, this is the difference between the market and the way the market deals with issues, and government and the way government deals with things. Don't outlaw the Fed. Don't abolish the Fed. Simply remove the obstructions of government and let the market take care of it. If there was a free market in money right now, do you think the Fed would exist more than a few months? If I could trade with silver and gold? Whatever people in the marketplace, whatever they're willing to accept, if I could do that in a truly free market, how long do you think the Fed would exist? How long do you think fractional reserve banking would exist if real banking were allowed, if all regulations were destroyed tomorrow, and and free banking were allowed so that I could set up my own bank, so I could have a bank right here at my house and run a bank out of my living room. If that were the case, where every mom-and-pop operator throughout the world could set up their own bank or their own currency or whatever, if you could do that and you truly had a free market, how long do you think centralized banking and a banking monopoly and, the and, the, and not only the Federal Reserve, the International Monetary Fund, how long do you think these things would exist? You see, when you think like a government and you act like a government, you, you can't help but break the zero aggression principle. When you, when you use the government as a sword to accomplish what you want accomplished, what you are doing is you are supporting the state and you are violating the zero aggression principle. So what should Ron Paul do? He should work toward shrinking, uh, not even shrinking. He should work toward um, removing the blocks that keep the market bound. He should be educating people that, no, we don't need to attack the Federal Reserve. We don't need to abolish the Federal Reserve. We don't need to abolish anything. We need to let the market function. And as the market functions... Who knows? Maybe there's a market for a Federal Reserve. Maybe there's a market for central banking. But, Ron, you're not God, and it's not your choice. It's the choice of the market. And that's the flaw in Ron Paul's thinking. That's why when he looks at the border problem on the, on the southern border of the U.S., he comes to the wrong conclusion. That's why, and on several other issues... That's why Ron Paul comes to the wrong conclusion because he's not thoroughly thinking through the zero aggression principle and applying it to what he's doing and what he's saying and what he's proposing. Okay, now for the second day in a row, I've taken hard shots at the Ron Paul people, but I'm doing it out of love. I'm doing it because I want free markets. I don't want to just swap masters. And there's one other thing, and I've said this many times before. Ron Paul is a serious threat to the GOP, and he's more of a threat today, today on May 11th, 2011. He's a greater threat today than he has ever been. Today, Ron Paul is a greater threat to the GOP and to the the Federal Reserve and to the banking cartels. He is a greater threat to them than was Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy, John Kennedy, Malcolm X, Gandhi. Should I go on? You know what all those people have in common? Folks, I'm going to break for our commercial. Stick with me. Two minutes, I'll be right back. How would you like to support badquaker.com and get something nice for yourself at the same time? I want to tell you about Survival Gear Bags. It's run by my friend Kelly who believes in and adheres to the non-aggression principle. Kelly's customers know him for his great customer service and his personal touch because Kelly handles all customer service himself. The main focus of Survival Gear Bags is to allow you to build your own custom emergency kits with quality gear. Now, I know this because I bought my bug-out bag from Survival Gear Bags over two years ago, and I've gone all over the country with it by my side. And you can rest assured that the prices will always be the best they can be at Survival Gear Bags. And if you use the link from badquaker.com, they'll probably throw in something for free for you with your order. Now, how do you do this? Well, it's simple. You go to badquaker.com, on the right side of the page, click on the picture of the backpack. Then look around at Survival Gear Bags and find the stuff you want. You'll help BadQuaker.com, and you'll support a merchant that's one of us. Now I want to tell you about another way you can support BadQuaker.com and get something really cool at the same time. Shire Silver. Shire Silver is the proud seller of silver and gold trade cards. Shire Silver believes that silver and gold trade cards will show the world a better way to save, spend, and share precious metals. So what are silver and gold trade cards? There are specific weights of gold and silver laminated inside credit card-sized tradable cards. They're a handy and affordable way to trade precious metals. These cards received nationwide recognition when they were widely used as barter at the New Hampshire Porcupine Festival. You want a beer and a hot dog? Hand them a Shire Silver 5 card and get a Shire Silver 1 spot back as change. So again, what do you do? Well, you go to badquaker.com. On the right side, just below the backpack, you'll see the Shire Silver trade cards. Click on those cards and then check out Shire Silver's site. Be sure and watch Ron's video that's right there on the main page. And then swap some of those ridiculous Federal Reserve notes for something of real value, something you can keep, trade, or give as the coolest gift ever. But be sure and use the link from badquaker.com. Thanks, folks. Okay, folks, thanks for sticking with me through the, the break there. I want to pick back up, uh, not where I was at the Ron Paul bashing. Hopefully, that we're done with that for today. But I want to pick back up on the mistake that I made, and I I didn't actually. uh, I keep saying that I didn't actually make a mistake. My mistake was in not fully um, explaining something that I had on my mind in a direction that I meant to go, but I ran out of time. Not not yesterday's podcast, but the one prior to that when I was talking about Roderick Long and uh, uh, and uh, Robert Higgs. Roderick Long had made some comments about uh, gaining a libertarian majority, and, uh, then, and he, had, he made some very good uh, remarks about it. And then I wanted to comment on that, and there was something that I should have said that I failed to say. And so I want to get to that, but before I do, I want to b- kind of build up, kind of set the stage for what I'm talking about. So I want to review something that I read. This is in my notes. I, I read this the other day when, on the Roderick Long uh, uh, podcast. But I want to read it again just so that we're on the same page in thinking in this. Uh, Markets reward good behavior. If a supplier is successfully providing a good or service that people want, they reward that supplier by giving him money for his good or service. This is exactly what I was talking about with Ron Paul before the break there. This not only encourages the supplier to provide more of his product, it encourages other suppliers to enter that market, and compete, these two factors drive the quality of the goods or services higher, and they drive the price lower while still rewarding the suppliers. That competition will drive innovation as the suppliers reach the lowest possible price that they can achieve while still making a profit. Now, you can see this very vividly in the cell phone market, which has had surprisingly little uh, in, uh interference by the state uh, during its very rapid growth, although we're starting to see interference now with all the draconian, you know, uh, no driving while texting laws and on this kind of thing. We're going to see more and more of that kind of stuff coming, uh, you know, at us in the future. But anyway, what we saw with cell phones was uh, as they began on the market, there were very few companies that offered them. And they were really big and clunky, and they didn't work all that well, and there was a lot of gaps in coverage and things like this. But as more and more competitors entered the market, the cell phones got dramatically better uh we we did see some uh, variation within there this a standardization the lack of standardization was a real problem with cell phones early on, so that you had to have you know one family would have to have five or six different types of chargers to to cover everybody's different styles of phones and there were things like that that were cumbersome uh, that that's the market still hasn't fully worked out but um but the cell phones have become Better and better and better and cheaper uh, to the point of where in some situations you can get a free cell phone, a very good free cell phone, uh, just for buying the service of, you know, uh, the, the cell phone service. So uh, the more competition that's there, the more suppliers uh, get involved, the, the lower the price is driven and the higher the quality of the product and service is, is achieved. And then when the producers have driven the, the, the price point down to where they, they simply can't make it any cheaper and still make money off of it, it, it drives them to, na- to take the next logical step, which is innovation. You com- if you can't compete by price, you compete by innovation. You'll offer fancier things or new variations or, or, or maybe a whole new product that, that takes the line in a different direction or whatever. So this is, the, this is the natural workings of the market when the market is left alone. Okay, going back. Innovation is rewarded by more profit. And both the suppliers' and the consumers' lives are made better by this process. But in seeing this principle, it's just as important to understand that the market punishes bad behavior. Now, that's what I was talking about with the Federal Reserve and Ron Paul earlier. If, if assuming the government is out of the picture altogether, if the Federal Reserve or, or central banking or fractional reserve banking, if, if, if the market really doesn't like those products and services the market will cleanse itself of them if there's no aggression of government. Okay, so the market punishes bad behavior. Beh- behavior: If a supplier fails to provide a good or service that people want, they punish that supplier by holding back money from him. This encourages other suppliers to step in and provide goods and services that the people actually want. When this happens, the people reward the new suppliers, Uh, the new supplier's good behavior and the loop starts over again that's the wonders of the market and this all is guided that's that's exactly what the you know when you hear about the invisible hand that's that's what is do that's what's happening there it's almost like someone's in control but the moment someone tries to actually get control of it in central planet it all it's all destroyed it, it is no longer a free market, and that's what governments do. They, they come in with central planning, and they try to manage or control or regulate a market, and all they're really doing is getting in the way of that market's ability to, to function naturally. Okay, now governments reward bad behavior. If an arm of government provides an unacceptable good or service, the government addresses that problem by increasing government interference and dumping more stolen money on the problem. So if schools are failing, the only solution offered by government are more legislation and more stolen money. If roads are bad, the only solution is more restrictions on vehicles followed by dumping money into more road programs. If the economy turns sour, the only solution is to restrict business and dump more money into the central banking cartels. That's the way government works. All right, now going back to Roderick Long's, uh, well, actually I have a little bit more set up here too. As the state grows, as it logically must, it reveals more and more of its true nature. And the more of its true nature is revealed, the less people will believe the myth of the benevolent state. This process, along with Stefan Molyneux's argument about raising new generations of little anarchists, could create the anarchist majority that Roderick Long discussed. Okay, now I've got a little side note here. It says, clarify about a majority of people, a majority of people, oh, I see, a majority of people who are active, not a majority of people. Okay, so here's the thing of it with voters and voting and and the majorities and things like that. If you actually look at the whole population, about half of people or maybe a little bit more than half of people are not involved in any way in the political process. They could care less about it. They either feel that it's dirty and they don't want to involve themselves with it, or they feel it's confusing and they're intimidated by it and they don't want to involve themselves with it, or they just don't care. They, they've they given up on the whole process for whatever reason, and they, and they don't want to uh, be involved in it. So like in the United States, at least, about half of the people just simply don't vote, don't want to, they, they don't care. They don't want to talk about politics. They don't want to think about politics and they don't care. So first off, a majority is never needed uh, to change a society. We, If we look back to um, the War of Independence, it's been estimated that in the high numbers, if you really go with the high numbers, maybe twenty-five to thirty percent of the colonists actually wanted to break away from Great Britain, and about an equal number didn't want to break away from Great Britain. Twenty-five to thirty percent, and the rest just didn't care or didn't want to be involved, or just saw it as you know what those radicals are involved in. They they didn't want anything to do with it. So really, only about a quarter, and, they, and again, this is on the big side of the numbers, it may have been some, some have estimated as small as 10% of the colonists actually actively wanted to break away from England. But, uh, but we'll go with the big numbers. Let's say 20 25% really um, wanted to break away from England. And they did so quite successfully. So they fought against taxes, and they won, and then the government that they allowed to slip in immediately put more taxes on them than than the government that they had thrown out. But you see, it's not about an, a true majority of the people. You never really need a full majority of the people for anything like this. And then again, even if you did reach a majority, and this was a thing that I was hitting at with Roderick Long the other day, Even if you did hit a majority, even if we could somehow get a majority of people who were libertarian or who were anarcho-capitalist or whatever, if you could get a true majority of people, you would need a tremendous amount of self-discipline to resist the temptation to inflict your version of liberty upon humanity. You see... A lot of people tell you, well, Ron Paul would never succumb to the to the power of government. He would always, he's stuck to his guns all these years. He would stick to his guns if he was president. Well, you know, I promised I wasn't going to go back and beat up Ron Paul, but just at least one more shot on him. Okay, but yeah, he is in charge of the banking committee right now, and what he's doing is violating the zero aggression principle, as I demonstrated earlier in the conversation. You see, this is what the person who holds the ring tends to want to do. They want to use that ring. They want to use it for good. But the ring can't be used for good. It cannot be used for good, and the longer you keep it in your pocket, the more it kills you. Yeah, yeah, it brings life. Yeah, it does that. And it kills you at the same time. It kills that part of you, that that natural law part of you, and it twists your thinking to justify the use of aggression upon others. So even if we could, even if it were possible, it's not possible and it's not necessary, but if it were possible that we could get a majority, then the great temptation would be to use that majority and try to inflict upon humanity our version of libertarianism, our version of freedom. And that would be just as easy just as evil as what the government is doing to us right now. As a matter of fact it would be falling to the temptation that we have now been fighting almost 10,000 years against it would be falling to that temptation it would be making uh it would be making a god of ourselves it would be like envying the god that is and saying i want to be like that i want to rise up on on high and i want to be a god that's kind of what would happen if, if, if we attempt to have a majority and make, the, make society in the way that we want it to be, it, it has to go naturally. It has to, the market has to choose society. And I've said this before. When the market decides to get rid of the state, when the market decides that the state is, is a burden and is no longer needed, then the market will get rid of the state. It's not something we have to actively do. And as a matter of fact, by getting involved in politics, we're actually going contrary to the right direction. I, I've talked about this before. If uh, if a robber is in the process, he you know, you're walking down the street, he jumps in front of you, sticks a gun in your ribs, you don't have a chance to, to do anything about it, you don't have a chance to draw your own weapon, you don't have a chance to do anything, he's got the drop on you, he's got the gun pointed at you. You're not moving fast enough to give him your wallet. He pulls the trigger, and his and his gun jams. Is the smart thing to do to say, hey, I know that pistol. I know that model, and I know why that jam. Let me see that. I can help you out. And you take his gun. You break it down really quick. You clear the jam. You reassemble it. You uh, hand it back to him, and it's all clean, and it's ready to go. And you're like, okay, there you go, Mr. Robber. See, if we get involved in government and if Ron Paul gets involved in government and all these wishes come true, what you're actually doing is you're creating a situation where the government becomes far more efficient than it is right now. And yet it retains all its power. And Ron Paul's not going to be president forever and live forever. Ron Paul, as, as Roderick Long pointed out, we can't maintain a, ma- a, a majority. Therefore, we can't maintain control of the head of government. That being the case, they're going to figure out how radical we are pretty quickly. Ron Paul's pretty radical. And when the the majority of people figure that out, they'll throw him out. And when they do, what you've created is, you've created a government that's far more efficient than it is now, and yet it has every, every, every bit of the power that it's been building up over the last 10,000 years. You just made it more efficient. You just cleared the jam and handed it back a loaded gun. That's what you've done. And that's assuming, like I said a minute ago, that's assuming they don't kill Ron Paul before he gets to that position. They've done it before, and I believe they'll do it again. Okay, uh, now I've gone through part of my notes that I've been trying to get to all week, but I haven't got to what I <laughs> one of the things I wanted to get to. Uh, Nima, uh, Nima Vidati over at the Freedom Fiends, last Sunday presented me with a series of questions on their Sunday call-in show, and I got to partially answer two of them, but I never got to the third because the show was, we, we, they just had so many call-ins coming in that uh, we just couldn't get to the third question. Um, so I was <laughs> I was supposed to sometime this week cover Nema's three questions, um, and I, I haven't got to them. And, and this would just be a good time to give a, a quick little um, endorsement of the Freedom Fiends show. It's a Sunday night. Uh, Sunday, it starts about 5 o'clock, I believe it is, 5 o'clock Eastern Time. And it's on the Liberty Radio Network, which also uh, badquaker.com podcast is on the Liberty Radio Network. But I, I believe it's 5 o'clock Eastern Time on the Liberty Radio Network. And you can find that at lrn.fm. Uh, the the streaming feed is there. And there's there's even a little chat thing there. I drop in on that chat uh, right on the main page of LRN uh, FM, if you scroll down a little bit, there's a there's a chat box down there, and I I drop in on that every now and then and say hi to the folks that are in there. But uh, on Sunday nights, five o'clock Eastern time, Nima Vidati and Michael W. Dean have their Freedom Fiends live uh, show on, and you can call in live and talk to them. And they have a variety of guests that call in, too. Uh, I've called in a few times. Um, uh, Ian Freeman has called in. Several other people like that have called in. But it's a really good show, and I really enjoy it. I've, I've missed it a couple times, but I try to get to it as, as often as possible. So uh, that's where Nima had, uh, was asking me the questions, and here's the three questions I'll present for you. Uh, question number one. Do you consider a person who routinely violates the zero, zero aggression principle As a bad person, that's the first one. The second question, can a police officer, as we know them today, keep his job without violating the zero aggression principle? And the third question is, are all cops... uh, Oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, Third question, are there any good cops left today? Are there any good cops today? Okay, so I want to address those really quickly here. I kind of, you know, I'm not that quick... On that's that's why I don't really do a live show or anything because I'm not that fast on my feet. I, ha, I I like to think about things and roll them around in my mind. Um, but um, to the first question: Do you consider a person who routine, routinely violates the zero aggression principle as a bad person? Okay, well, I don't know. Um, here's the thing of it: We have uh, there's there's bad on the on the in the in the sense of behavior. And there's bad in the sense of judging a person morally. Uh, you know, let's let's take uh, Jesus. Let's go back to Jesus with the prostitute and, and the uh, and the people bringing the prostitute to him and throwing her at his feet and demanding he do something about it. So, um, so the prostitute is brought to Jesus, thrown at his feet, and they say, "Are you gonna you know Are you gonna stone her to death? Are you gonna punish her for her behavior?" And Jesus didn't. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus endorsed the behavior of the prostitute. That doesn't mean that he believed it was good behavior. Um, but what we saw in that example is that the aggression that the, that the accusers of grabbing her, uh, hauling her through the streets, embarrassing her, and throwing her at Jesus' feet with accusations, their aggression in, in Jesus' mind, was as bad, if not worse, than anything that she was doing. So, so Jesus didn't stone her to death, but neither did Jesus stone to death the accusers. He, see He saw the difference between behavior that's unacceptable and what is deep inside the person as to whether they're good or bad so her behavior as a prostitute and and part of the accusation was um adultery they in in one of the versions they call her an adulteress so that would indicate maybe that her that her client was married which would add uh which would actually add aggression to her to you know if if she is soliciting uh, uh, her services to a married man, then, then it might be you might be able to make the argument that she's aggressing on what might be considered the property of the wife. So, so you could actually make the argument that she, as a prostitute, no matter what your feelings are about prostitution, you could make the argument that she was aggressing upon the the wife in in, in the situation. But Jesus judged the situation and and realize and without endorsing any. Of the behavior, he saw that the nature of the person uh, was not bad, even though the act may have been bad, and he also saw that the nature of the of the accusers' their act of aggression against the prostitute was bad, but he also saw within them and could see their true nature. Now. I can't see within a person. I can't see their nature. I can only look at their behavior. So I can't actually judge the person to be good or bad. I can judge the behavior. Um, So do you consider a person who routinely violates the zero aggression principle as a bad person? No, no, I don't. Um, I judge them as violating the zero aggression principle, but I don't judge them as bad. I, I don't have that authority. I'm not going to pluck that fruit from the tree and make that decision. That that decision is not up to me. If they aggress against me or if they aggress against someone who employs me on their behalf, then I am prepared and I'm willing to take action against their aggression. But I'm not going to judge them as a person. Two, can a police officer, as we know them today, keep his job without violating the zero aggression principle? No. No, absolutely not. Police officers are required on a day-to-day basis to violate the zero aggression principle. Um, It's impossible to be a police officer as we know them today and keep your job. Uh, It's impossible to do that and not violate the zero aggression principle. If you come walk, if, as a police officer, if you come walking up to someone's car, you just, uh, you, let's say you saw them do something dangerous on the road. Not just We're not just talking about, oh, they're speeding, we're going to give them a ticket. No, you saw them do something like, you know, uh, something that could have caused an accident. And so you pull them over and you go walking up to them and you say, I'd like to see your driver's license and your uh, insurance, uh, proof of insurance. And if that person says, you know, uh, no. Go jump in a lake. I'm not going to do it. What are you going to do as a police officer? You're going to go, well, I tried. You, as a human being, have no right to detain that person. They, haven't, they may have done something dangerous, but if they didn't aggress on someone, if they didn't actually aggress on someone, then you have no right to detain them. You have no right to harass them. So you can't be a police officer as we know them today and do your job and do it without violating the zero aggression principle. Now the last question. I'm about to run out of time. Are there any good cops today? Now we're going back to judging the person. Are there good cops today? Well, it's according to what you call good, too. What's a good cop? A good cop is one that obeys the law? Sure, there are lots of good cops that obey the law every single day, are not corrupt, would never beat up an innocent person, would never do anything against the law. There are good cops in that sense. There are lots of them. But they're violating the zero aggression principle. Are there good cops in the sense of a person with a good heart? Yeah. Yeah. They're horribly confused. They are perpetuating the drug war, which is, making, which are, which is threatening American society, which is threatening the West. The drug wars are threatening the Western culture as we know it. And cops who, in, who who obey their commanders and inflict the drug war upon humanity are destroying Western culture. But that's not a judgment if they're good or bad because I can't look into their hearts. They could be just horribly deceived, horribly confused. And so I don't judge their heart. I judge their actions, and their actions are reprehensible. But they're good people. That are confused folks for more on liberty the zero aggression principle and property rights go to badquaker.com thank you very much for listening